The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you longing for a place where hope, ideas, and new ways of thinking can arise? For nearly 50 years, Omega Institute's campus in Rhinebeck, New York, has been a gathering place where world-class teachers provide innovative educational experiences that cultivate extraordinary potential in us all. Join us either on campus or online. To learn more, visit eomega.org. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. So first of all, it, it seems cruel, but it's not. And what I, what I meant to indicate in the book, and I hope it's clear, is that uh, exposure therapy has been criticized as being cruel. I don't actually see it that way. Um, just to define what it is, exposure therapy involves facing your fear. So let's just say you're nervous about speaking in public or meeting new people or speaking to your boss, raising your hand in a meeting or in class. We would gradually encourage you to take steps towards that, speaking to a stranger. Today on On the Pulse, I'm going to bring you my special guest, Dr. David H. Rosemarine. Now, he's the founder of the Center for Anxiety, which you find in New York, New Jersey, and in Boston. Dr. Rosemarine is also an associate professor at Harvard Medical School. Plus, as well, he's the director of the McLean Hospital Spirituality and Mental Health Program. Dr. Rosemarine is going to be with me here on The Pulse to discuss this. His latest book called Thriving with Anxiety, your nine tools to make your anxiety work for you, not against you. I think this is absolutely amazing, this discussion. We talk about the new age of anxiety in our society and how you can really turn anxiety into a strength in terms of connecting with yourself, society, as well as a spiritual dimension. So I think his book is quite revealing. Uh, we are going to define anxiety. What is actually the difference between anxiety and fear and stress? And does your anxiety, if at all, hamper you from the real, true, happy life you could be living? And how do we overcome anxiety? What are the tools to say, okay, I'm feeling anxious, but I'm gonna do it anyway. I hope you're going to enjoy this conversation with Dr. David H. Rosemarine on his latest book, Thriving with Anxiety. See you in a minute. Together, go out there, together. Well, good to see you back here on On The Pulse. I'm Patricia Fakabekali, your host. And today we're going to talk about the new age of anxiety. I didn't know there was a new age of anxiety. Actually, I didn't know that there was an age of anxiety because anxiety seems to be so normal. What's the big deal about it? But no, there is anxiety around and it is very prevalent. And after reading Thriving with Anxiety by David H. Rosemarine, Dr. David H. Rosemarine, 
uh, I understood how often anxiety is either misinterpreted or just taken as a normal modus vivendi, which does not necessarily um, mean it's a good thing, but it means also that there's a potential to turn it into a good thing. Dr. Rosemarine, thank you so much for being on the pulse for the book, and we are going to straight away deep dive into your work. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Really a great opportunity to chat with you today. Well, you know, the new age of anxiety, so much so anxiety is part of your life, especially a professional life, that you're the founder of the Center for Anxiety based in New York, New Jersey and Boston. How come? Well, um, the reason is not everybody has your approach to anxiety. As you were giving that intro, I was sort of chuckling to myself. You're saying anxiety is normal. It's just part of life. And I think that that is such a truth that our society has gotten away from to our great detriment. Today, people, when we start to feel anxious, we judge ourselves, we catastrophize, we think this is death. I shouldn't be feeling this way. Something's wrong with me. I'm weak. And that perception makes anxiety substantially worse. That way of thinking about anxiety actually is what's creating an anxiety epidemic today. Well, anxiety, I think before we really start looking at how to deal with it, perhaps because it's so misconceived, as we're both now stated, maybe we need to define it. Um, A, what is um, anxiety? And what is really the difference between anxiety, for example, the normal stress we may feel, and fear? And I think there might be 50 shades of gray that distinguish those three terms, but they're super important in order to actually understand if or if not one has a state of anxiety. Yeah, great questions. And uh, as a clinician, this is the kind of uh, uh, stuff that comes up in sessions all the time. So uh, I'll tell you the, the clinical prevailing clinical uh, psychology wisdom on, on these subjects. Um, firstly, anxiety and fear are pretty much the same. When anxiety occurs, it actually activates the fear circuit in our brain and the same physiological processes involved in fear occur when we are anxious. There's an adrenal response and what happens is a whole host of physiological sensations uh, occurs um, our breathing starts to increase, our, our heart starts to palpitate, we start to sweat, there can be disturbances in vision, and all of that is intended to keep us safe and to keep us healthy when there's an actual threat. That's fear. I don't know if you've ever had a situation where you are actually threatened. Those symptoms, if you will, keep get you mobilized, they get you out of harm's way. Anxiety is the exact same thing, but there's no real threat present. It's a perceived threat. It's not truly there, but we perceive it. So in other words, anxiety is a misfire of the fear system. Nothing less and nothing more. I love that definition because to me, when I read it in your book and I thought you you put it so well, I just thought, huh, fear is real and mm -hmm. anxiety is... Um, my imagination, but because I imagine it, my brain plays through whatever could be harmful to me or is I'm feeling threatened by, biologically, feel, phys physiologically, I'm having the same response. So the adrenaline is starting to pump, uh, my sympathetic oh, nerve is reacting, and so yeah. I'm like ready. 
as if I was really about to be killed or hit or whatever. So that is a fine line, it seems, right? Correct. And often people think because of this, that anxiety is a bad thing because it's it really is unnecessary. It's an unnecessary over response to a situation that somebody didn't really have to be that nervous about. At the same time, if you if you think about it, it's sort of like a smoke alarm. You know, I would prefer to have a smoke alarm that's a little overactive than one that doesn't pick up when there's an actual need for alerting me. Um, what we really don't want is a situation where you don't have any fear at all. Uh, people get into a lot of trouble that way. And uh, anxiety means you actually have a healthy fear response. And uh, in healthy people today, your anxiety response is going to happen. Sometimes we have these misfires of the system. It just people get ex extra stressed out. They're having a, a hard time. Um, they receive an email that seemed menacing. It turned out to be for someone else or whatever happened, you know, and um, having these misfires of the fear system is not a bad thing. Um, unless we um, allow it to, to get the better of us. Now, I think this is a very crucial point there because you, you also mentioned being stressed out. Now, um, being stressed out um, is not something that we are comfortable with. We need stress because stress motivates us, gives us a little bit of a, you know, it yep. trains us as well. But, you know, the, the ongoing stress stresses us out. And then we really don't want to get stressed. And maybe then we are anxious about getting into a situation that gets us stressed, etc. Now, I totally get it that you say, hey, being anxious or even being afraid is your alarm system. And you need it because nature wired us that well, that yep. that way that we need to be careful because we are vulnerable. We are all brains, but everything else can basically kill us, you know, from a microbe to, to a tiger. But, you know, so it is it is very, very good. Sure. However, you just you just said getting the better of us. And I would like to dig into it because anxiety wise, it can be a good thing. And I know how to manage it as the canary in the, whatever you call it, in the coal mine. Canary in the coal mine, can, yeah. Exactly. It can keep us also tucked away where we are too anxious to get, or to get out of the house, too anxious to speak to other people, too anxious to do whatever that we call life. So what happens today often is the, the experience of anxiety is almost uniformly and universally uh, unpleasant. Nobody likes to feel anxious. People don't like to feel fear either your heart's going, your adrenaline's pumping, your, it, it's, it's unpleasant. It leaves you feeling unmoored, um, unsafe, even though it's not. And um, anxiety off, often is described as being very aversive. This is uh, one of the reasons why Center for Anxiety is so busy. People often call us up, you know, we'll get emails at two in the morning saying, hi, I'm having a panic attack, please help me. Um, obviously we only return those the next day. Uh, you know, the, the point is uh, people often feel very aversive. It's very upsetting to them when they feel anxious. And here's where some, here's where really my approach comes in. The, once we accept that you're going to feel uncomfortable sometimes, this is a normal, healthy part of life. You are going to have aversive, upsetting emotions at times. Now the question becomes, what do you do when you feel anxious? Instead of snuffing it out, choking it off, trying to get rid of your anxiety, allowing yourself to have it, letting it ride. And now that actually opens up a door, or actually many doors, to different ways that we can thrive in our lives. And that's what this approach is about. 
And we're going to speak uh, about that in in uh, a more constructive way later on when we really go through the steps and tools. I wonder with this, you know, is anxiety nature or nurture? Or is it already where there is no line to be drawn? It's a great question. Often the answer is both, but I think there's a third factor in addition to nature and nurture. And that is um, really what do we choose to do after we feel anxious? So the other day, I had a stressful day myself at the office. A couple of things happened, which were really hard to handle in terms of uh, clinically. Um, there was some stuff with the staff. There were some just other issues that were coming up. And uh, I myself started to feel pretty uncomfortable in the afternoon. Fortunately, I have a toolkit. I know what to do. I went for a walk. I gave myself 20 minutes. Actually, it was closer to 30 minutes. To go for a walk through Boston. I walked to the Boston Public Garden. I took in the ducks, swans. You know, there were people walking around, kids, dogs. Happened to have been a beautiful sunny day. I got myself a drink. I was walking around. I practiced self-compassion. I didn't judge myself for feeling anxious or for getting upset. Um, just because, you know, I specialize in anxiety doesn't mean I never get anxious. It just means I know what to do when that happens. And those decisions have a much larger effect on anxiety and on ourselves, whether we have nature or nurture on our side. Some people will have more or less anxious anxiety, depending on their nature and nurture. But what really matters is how we respond when we feel anxious. And that, I think, is the one thing we seem to have control over. And that is something that you also mentioned in your book. And you quoted Dr. Aaron Beck, for example, with his cognitive behavioral model of, sure. of anxiety, which I thought was so interesting because a couple of things. I wonder whether there is a stigma about feeling anxious. And a lot of people don't really want to admit that they feel anxious because it may look weak. It may look that they're afraid. It may look that a big man that should really, you know, know how to manage uh -huh. himself and every uh, every situation all of a sudden feels anxious. So whatever, whatever it takes, he either puts it away, does not accept it, as you said, does not even recognize it, doesn't accept it, doesn't embrace it, and certainly does not use your tool to get over it. Right. Um, yeah. And the other thing is with that model showed um, that you mentioned by Dr. Beck is that we have actually only in the whole chain between trigger and then our eventual behavior, just one moment of control, which is how we think about it. What That's exactly mean. his model. You will get triggered. You will feel anxious. You will start to feel uncomfortable. And at that point, we have a choice in our mind. Do you interpret that as, I'm a failure, I'm weak, I can't show this anxiety. If I do, there'll be catastrophic consequences. People will judge me. They're going to misunderstand who I am. Or do you lean into it and say, this is a normal feeling for me to have on a difficult day, or because this thing just happened to me, or because I have a healthy, robust fear system and it happened to have gotten mistriggered just like my fire alarm, those positive perceptions and thoughts, cognitions about our anxiety make a massive difference in terms of the course and the severity of anxiety over time. Yeah, this is kind of like, um, what is it called? Metacognition, when you think about your thinking, yeah. right? Exactly which is, what it is. Yeah, which, which is, a, is a really interesting tool. Now, um, let's get into uh, 
one part which fascinated uh, two parts i mean the whole book is fascinating david don't get me wrong okay <laughs> but there are two chapters i was just devouring the one thing was the exposure therapy yeah um because i love everything about hormones so um exposure therapy and you called it the cru the cruelest cure uh, because it's a neurobiological base uh, um, basis of treatment. Talk to us about this cruel cure, which you deeply believe in as well as a good way to look and perhaps treat anxiety and even worse fear. Yeah. So first of all, it, it seems cruel, but it's not. And what I, what I meant to indicate in the book, and I hope it's clear, is that uh, exposure therapy has been criticized as being cruel. I don't actually see it that way. Um, just to define what it is, exposure therapy involves facing your fear. So let's just say you're nervous about speaking in public or meeting new people or speaking to your boss, raising your hand at a meeting or in class. We would gradually encourage you to take steps towards that, speaking to a stranger, asking a stupid question that you think you're going to get judged for, so to speak, stupid question, um, wearing something that's not quite, you know, going to fit in. Um, speaking up in class, giving a speech impromptu, you know, obviously, you know, that latter one is very anxiety provoking. But the point of exposure therapy is that you expose yourself to whatever is making you anxious. And it's been criticized as being cruel because it's not fun. People who go through exposure therapy are sweating, they're shaking, they're experiencing their anxiety in the full. It's unpleasant. Um, for the patient and for the therapist, because we have to, you know, be there with them. And it's, it's not fun to watch people struggle. However, um, I really think it empowers people. I've seen uh, countless patients, hundreds of patients go through exposure therapy and come out the other side, having faced their fears, more resilient, stronger, um, better able to handle any life stressor, and especially the one that they were specifically facing. Um, it's an amazing tool to be able to do this. At the core of exposure therapy is that we believe in our patients, we believe in ourselves, that we can overcome anxiety, and that allowing ourselves to experience it won't leave us weaker or it'll actually make us stronger. And that's what happens when people complete it. It's an amazing thing. Yeah. And you came up with quite a few examples in your book. Which one the most was the most impressive one for you where you used Ugh. exposure to the therapy and uh, you know the, the guy or the, the lady just changed? I think the case of Darlene in the book was pretty telling. Um, the reason why is because we conquered it in one day. Uh, all of Darlene had a very specific fear of spiders and um, we worked on it for five or six hours in one day in a couple of settings. It was extremely uncomfortable. Um, she was squirming. She was, you know, uh, viscerally uh, uncomfortable. Uh, I myself was not so comfortable having a tarantula walking on my arm and, you know, up to my neck and onto my head. Um, that was something I had not done before. Um, but um, what happens is you get over it, you know, through sitting there for the first couple of seconds are horrendous. Eventually, though, she got used to it. You know, by the end, she was almost playing with the animals. I mean, it was it was a really an incredible transformation to see in such a short amount of time. Now, now, granted, for a specific phobia, you can do that in certain cases. 
if people have generalized anxiety, it's much more complicated. Social anxiety is more complicated. So I wouldn't say you can cure all anxiety in one day, cure, so to speak, learn to accept it in one day. But I think of all the cases of exposure therapy in the book, that's probably, that probably takes the cake. Yeah, I I like that impression, expression. You know, something like that I know through hypnosis is possible. Okay, mm-hmm. but this is a is a very different approach, and uh, I think here the the exposure to something you are so afraid of is really what triggers so many and two especially two pathways in the brain, which I would like you to talk about. So we, you mentioned the amygdala and the hippocampus. And yes. yeah, and both those those systems, prefrontal cortex and also the midbrain, are super important because this is really where this one day switch can happen. Let's so I, I you want to get into the neurobiology short. Yes. This is what really convinced me of exposure therapies, yeah. um, efficacy or effectiveness, how it works. There's a, a an area in the brain called the hippocampus. The hippocampus is a midbrain structure. The reason it's called hippocampus is because it looks like a seahorse. Hippocampus is, uh, I believe, Latin for seahorse, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, that structure encodes memory into the cortex. So if you have um, what we call a flashbulb memory, if there was a certain event, you know, people uh, back in the day used to say they knew where they were when John F. Kennedy was, was assassinated. Uh, now, still back in the day, people say, I know, I remember where I was on the morning of September 11, 2001. Um, other key events in people's lives, they remember other things around it, where they were, what they had for breakfast that day, what time, what, what was the weather like, um, who they were sitting next to. And the reason why is because when your emotions, which are triggered by other midbrain structures, or I should say mediated by other midbrain structures, such as the amygdala, right next to the hippocampus, it increases blood flow to the hippocampus, which encodes those memories strongly in the brain. In other words, the more intense emotion you have, the more strong your memory will be at that moment. And this is why, as I understand rightly- Correct, exactly. Mm -hmm. No, this is why the high pain or the high emotion um, is exactly what makes a difference because there right. you actually see you have that high emotion, but nothing is happening. So next time, you know, hey, listen, this is not going to be, you know, whatever the anxiety is, it's not going to be painful because I made this high emotion. Basically, I exposed myself. I had the high emotion, the high pain, nothing really happened. And that is then the new programming in my brain, which then the next time I come around, a spider has a different response. That's exactly it. Just to take people back a little bit in terms of how they got the phobia in the first place, you know, going back to Darlene, her, her case, there was uh, an event by um, somebody in her family who um, had uh, was basically attacked by a group of spiders, and uh, yeah, some sort of a nest, and it was a it was a tricky situation, um, and ended up in hospital, and um, actually was uh, was I don't know uh, how serious it was, but for certainly for for Darlene, she was. She was uh, very concerned for this family's family members' well-being. So at that time, she had a lot of intense emotion, which was paired with this memory of the spider, and that created this fear in her mind. The only way for her to overcome it was to experience the same level of intensity of emotion while facing the spiders, while going through it and seeing it's an anxiety and not a fear day to day. Um, 
So yeah, just as you said, the act we had to activate her hippocampus in session in order for her to truly get it into her brain to create a new neural pathway, if you will, um, through exposure therapy, that things are going to be okay. Yeah. And, you know, I have these conversations with my daughter when she has uh, anxiety presenting something at university and she's mm -hmm. anxious. And I say, okay, so what's the worst thing that can happen? So and actually I play along with it to just play it through because a worry ward, you talk also about the worry wards there, which are so annoying because I always go <laughs> through it. Oh my God, what can go wrong? I'm like, okay, okay, things can go wrong, but what's the worst thing that can happen? And they don't go, oh, maybe, maybe it's not so bad. It's really, really important, right? You have such a healthy approach to anxiety yourself. Um, worry is so common today, especially in the United States. Um, and you're right. I guess there is a little bit of an annoyance around it. But at, at the same time, you know, it's such a common thing. I think it's brilliant what you're doing with your daughter to get her to actually talk about, well, like, what would actually happen if what you're worrying would come true? And people often don't go there. They don't allow themselves to experience the intense emotion. Worry actually stops you from feeling intense emotion, ironically. And because um, it keeps it at a surface level. People are saying, what if, what if, what if? But they don't answer that question. So what you're doing with your daughter is brilliant. I think more parents um, should do the same. Um, well, what would really happen? And you know, the kid will probably say, oh my God, that's so terrifying. I don't want to think about that. Well, well, think about it. You know, be prepared for that. Like, let's let's actually talk about it. If it's upsetting you, let's go there. And we often try to protect ourselves and each other from intense emotions without recognizing that that's the pathway forward in order to create resilience and to thrive in life. We need to learn how to do this. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, it often is the pain that actually makes us then understand Correct. things, or you know, gets us gets us up to to learn something. And I and I wonder, I wonder yeah. to what extent this kind of anxiety or the same type of way about thinking about something becomes then a habit. And you know, and I, and I wonder, you know, you have an emotion and that follows emotion, and then you have the motion, and then that is again linked with an emotion, and it's kind of a uh, you know, a back and forth, which is trapping you, 
which is kind of a loop, like a hyperloop. It is really tough to break unless somebody looks at it differently, reads your book or goes and calls you um, um, at your at your institute. Yeah, I think that's exactly what happens. We get stuck in a pattern of feeling anxious, judging ourselves, getting upset about our anxiety, trying to avoid it. It comes back. It rears its ugly head again. We try to push it away. We are getting upset about it. And we're just caught in this cycle of avoidance, self-judgment, catastrophizing, and heightened levels of anxiety to the point of some pretty serious dysfunction today. Anxiety is, as we were saying at the beginning, quite the epidemic. Yeah. Um, the body wants to go into homeostasis, so it wants to balance. So usually when you are really reactivated at the same time, and you also illustrate this in your book, you have another system that calms you down. So you need, when you are in a real fear and you're being attacked, you need that strength to run, you know, or sure. to fight. But eventually you have to come down and that system is already activated more or less, you know, a few seconds, you say later, but it will set in. Is this the important part of when you say, hey, just let it run, it will pass? Yes. We talked a little bit before about the anxiety and the fear response. It's called the symp sympathetic nervous system activation. Now, right when your sympathetic nervous system activates, when the beginning of the fear response, the adrenal glands are starting to, starting to fire. You're getting adrenaline in your system and all those symptoms are occurring. The heart rate, the, the increased breathing, the sweating, et cetera, muscle tightness. Right at that moment, we have what's called a parasympathetic nervous system response. Now that is a slower response, can take half an hour, but those are another set of chemicals which are released into your bloodstream, which calm down the effects of anxiety. Which means the moment you feel anxious or fear, you have a physiological guarantee, unless something is medically wrong, and if so, you would have known it as a neonate. So if you're an adult and you know you haven't been told that you have this medical problem, then you don't. Those that process, the parasympathetic nervous system response, will calm you down unless you continue to fight. And if you fight against your anxiety, that will perpetuate the anxiety response and release additional adrenaline into your system. And the parasympathetic nervous response will not be sufficient to quell it. But if you just let it go and let yourself experience the anxiety, don't fight against it. It's a physiological guarantee that you will calm down. Is that the so-called, okay, just breathe deeply, count to 10 and sit it out? Well, it's interesting. If the intention of breathing deeply is to try to get rid of your anxiety, I'm not sure I would recommend it. If the intention of breathing deeply is so you can just get through it and face your anxiety, not fight it in another way, that would be helpful. And it's interesting, in, it's less about the behavior you do and more about the function of the behavior. If the intention of what you're doing is I gotta stop feeling anxious, you're gonna feel worse. If you're trying to meditate even, or to breathe, to try to get rid of the anxiety, <laughs> it's gonna make it worse. It looked stressful what you just did. happens all the time in my office, believe me. <laughs> but if your intention is just like, this really sucks right now, but I'm going to let it ride. I'm not going to fight this. I'm going to see how long it lasts. Maybe it'll be a minute. Maybe it'll be five minutes. The other day I had a medical procedure done. It was not expected. I was actually in a foreign country at, a at the time. 
And I went to a doctor, a reputable doctor. And the minute they started doing this procedure, I started to feel a little bit faint. And it's happened to me once or twice before in a medical situation. And I knew right away, I'll go, it's my vasovagal system. Like this is, this is a fear response. I don't have anything really to fear. So it's actually anxiety. I didn't fight it. It was so uncomfortable, but it just, it, I just let it consume me for three, four minutes. The doctor recognized right away what was happening. Didn't have to coach me much. I just, he kind of stopped. He's like, okay, take a minute or two. And I did. It was so viscerally uncomfortable, but I didn't fight it. Had I fought it, it would have ruined my whole day. By the time I left that office, 30 minutes later, after the procedure was finished, I was fine the rest of the day. I was calm. Um, I was sort of enjoying that parasympathetic response that like sort of maybe a little more soporific and chilled out the rest of the day, which was kind of nice, as opposed to fighting it. And, and I know so many times either myself or in certainly patients that I've seen who just, we just don't want to feel that uncomfortable. We think something's wrong. And there's nothing wrong with feeling uncomfortable in of itself. Mm. Yet again, if I look at our society, and you also mentioned that in your book, what is the fastest is not necessarily to either chill out, go for a walk, um, even meditate, or just be mindful, but mood shifters, quick fixes, yeah. like the drink, the drug, the just, you know, distraction from yourself. Yeah, people will do anything they can to run away from anxiety. And the further we run away from it, the faster it pursues us. Physiologically, that's what's happening. If you run away from anxiety, you get your blood pumping more, which releases more adrenaline. It's literally a direct physiological effect. The, the longer and harder you run away from anxiety, the greater it will chase you with greater force. And it will always win. It will <laughs> always win until you face it, exactly, and you do it. the exposure. <laughs> gonna, no, you're going to lose the race. You're going to lose the race. But what you can do, instead of only not losing the race, you can use this anxiety as a type of energy within you. And I think this is where you're also your, your nine tools come into. How can you really have that anxiety uh, make you into somebody that, understands better other people, other situations, relationships in general, be it your love relationship, the relationship with your family, your children, but also at work. Talk to us about that a bit. Great. Now we're talking. So once I surrender to anxiety and I realize I'm going to lose, anxiety is going to win. It's going to overcome me. I'm going to feel uncomfortable. So now what? So now I can be more mindful of my own feelings, my own needs, but also my relationships with other people. I mean, my own personal experience of anxiety over the years has, I think, made it so much easier for me to understand my patients. Many of them are grappling with situations that, you know, I couldn't possibly fathom myself facing. Some of them are such heroes. It's incredible. I feel very humbled to work with them. Um, but I have a bit of an understanding of what they're going through because I felt some degree of uncomfort and I've let myself feel that uncomfort, that discomfort. It can enhance our empathic capacity. When we go there ourselves, we can have a bigger heart to understand what other people are going through and to interpolate from our own experience where they are. Uh, another piece though, which is even more, and I think as a male, um, this is something that we're not trained to do in our society in general, is opening up to other people about how you feel. Early on in my marriage, I've been married now uh, about 22 years. Wow, congrats. Yeah. yeah, I got married young. 
And early in my marriage, I did not show a lot of emotion to my wife. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it was hard for her. Like, you know, what's he, you know, is he feeling that way? Is he not feeling that way? Like, how did she respond to me? She would try certain things. It was, wasn't like what I was saying really wasn't what I was feeling on the inside. And at a certain point, I'm like, you know what? I just got to be real with her. And I started telling her when I was having an anxious day or when I was feeling stressed. And I thought at first, like, she's going to lose respect for me, but she didn't. Not at all. It made us a lot closer. Showing that vulnerability, allowing oneself to, like, go there and say, I'm feeling really anxious right now. I don't know what's going on. And allowing yourself to lean on the people who you can trust. Not everyone, but, you know, one or two people, hopefully, in your life, you can really do that. Being vulnerable and going there can greatly enhance um, intimacy and connection. It's an amazing thing. Uh, and and this is so interesting what you're saying, because I'm just trying to imagine how it must have been for you, but also for your wife, because that was already the first years of marriage. You wouldn't really open up and you would be, you know, maybe because of these anxieties, uh, not be really yourself. Right. Uh, in in that I sense, I wasn't fully being myself. I mean, no, I wasn't. Um, I didn't realize that. I would be fully accepted if I was, if I showed my anxiety, but it actually allowed me to be more accepted than, than, than ever, yeah. which was so counterintuitive and and really very transformative. Yeah. And I think society is moving more and more into allowing vulnerability, allowing failure, allowing, Hey, um, mia culpa. I'm sorry. I, I don't know what happened. Yeah. It's, it's uh, you know, it's on me, which yeah, was cool. certainly when we were little, maybe not the case. But what I, I thought I wanted to ask you, if I may, is these anxieties. Anxiety, where where does it really come from? One thing is you can generalize, yet yeah, we all have to have anxieties or even fear because it is one modus for us to, to survive as a species. But the other one is our individual um, anxieties of, you know, spiders or heights or just people or or whatever um where did yours come from and at what point did you a recognize it and b then said well i cannot i cannot n- continue hiding it anymore it needs to come out and then it happened that it came out with your wife great i'll give you two answers the first is that people tend to become most anxious about that which they care about the most so we talked about darlene and the spiders she didn't really care about the spiders but she certainly did care about her relative who was almost killed at least in her mind by spiders so that created something like oh no this is going to take away this person from me like i I obviously have to avoid spiders you know when people have obsessive compulsive disorder it's almost always in an area that they truly value you know whether it's germs they might be really value their health or whether it's um, you know, areas of spirituality and religion. Sometimes that can be a, a context for, 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 for OCD, for obsessive compulsive disorder. That means they typically truly value it. And that's the domain uh, or relationships for that matter. So that's the one answer. The other answer is that anxiety is a normal emotion. I mean, if you care about something, you're going to feel anxious about it. Uh, and then again, question goes back to what we were saying before. What do you do when you feel anxious? Do you allow that to occur Do you open up to someone else about it? Do you understand it yourself? Or do you judge yourself, try to shut it off, clamp it down, um, show everybody else that you're perfect? Those are the questions that we face. 
something you really care about. And I wonder, for example, if I look at my own anxieties, um, right. yes, something I care about, but something that in a way in my childhood also uh, was traumatizing. So for us, it was, uh, you know, we are, we are immigrants, we are a refugee family coming to Germany. Um, basically, I grew up very poor. And I grew up in a way where it was always red alarm. Will we make it to uh, the end of the month? And um, it, it was difficult. It was difficult. My, my dad had to start um, university again. My mom was pulling us through. And wow. it was it was diff it was difficult. Wow. And um, that, I think, really was an financial anxiety is a red thread in in my life. Mm -hmm. And it was, on the other hand, a big motivator a big motivator to make sure that I don't want to live like this anymore. I didn't know whether I said, okay, I have financial anxiety, but I just knew this is the kind of stress I don't want in my life <laughs> is to wonder about if or if not, I can afford something that is a commodity or whether I will, you know, um, get to the end of the month with a paycheck. So I knew I didn't want that. So for me, that wasn't, was a motivator. But then once that was all good, and in place, and it doesn't matter how financially sound my, my position may have been, that anxiety is like almost as, as if I was epigenetically changed. So my first thought would be, okay, but can we, is that, okay, you know, is it investing or is it consuming? You know, <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? So these kinds of things where I had to then step out of it and say, like I said to my, to my daughter, well, What's the worst thing that ha can happen to you right now if you buy this or you invest into that? Are you are you not going to eat next? You know the next day or look what you have accumulated. You are going to be okay, but this is still almost like a daily practice I have to do consciously. It's such a great story about thriving with anxiety, Patricia, because what you're saying is that you have a deep seated financial anxiety somewhere, and we all have some sort of anxiety somewhere that we're dealing with, and instead of judging yourself and getting upset about it, having it sort of dictate your life in a in a negative way, you faced it and you said, I obviously have these needs because of my circumstances that I grew up in. And I'm going to try to address those in my life and also face the possibility that like, you know, who knows what's going to happen financially or otherwise. And even teach others like my, you know, like your daughter. Um, about that. I mean, that's such a great story for how to turn this anxiety into a strength, something that I think bonds you to other people and gives you um, a sense of resilience as opposed to um, as opposed to something that takes just the air out of under your wing. It takes taking the, you know, taking the air away from you. Yeah. And another thing you mentioned earlier on is like, once you face your own anxiety, you know that that, um, is something that you, you try to manage, you know, you know, try to manage your emotions. If not, your emotions will manage you. This is like a famous little line yeah. is, you know, chapter five. I love that chapter. So that is all about relationships and being understanding, okay, <laughs> and connecting with your friends and knowing the base, as you described, that 90% of how we act or how we respond or react rather to triggers is actually due to your past experiences and only 10 percent happen really here in the moment and consciously sure all right and that we <laughs> that that's great and we kind of uh, i get it but 
you were really pushing me personally um, where you said you have to understand people where they're coming from. And I'm just thinking, yeah, but you know, when they annoy me and, you know, why do I have to hang out with them? Why do I have to be empathetic? They are, you know, okay, they're not psychopaths. I do understand. And you write about psychopaths as well. It, right. uh, okay, wanna, this is the line. Wanna, but, you know, you exactly. 90% of the people that you, you know, kind of think, do I really want to hang out with you are not psychopaths. They're just people that annoy you with with their behavior or with not being conscious about their behavior or re reacting rather than responding and just not being cognitively, emotionally or spiritually evolved. There's a judgment that happens internally. When we start to feel anxious, we get upset at ourselves. Why am I feeling this way? I shouldn't. The same thing happens interpersonally where people do things that are annoying they're bothering us. They're doing things that are obtuse. They're like making really bad decisions right in front of us. Decisions that we've seen them make historically for months, years. And we can get frustrated and judge them and get upset. Or we can understand that everyone's got their package. Everyone's got their issue. I've got my issues. I have my red buttons. You've got your red buttons. We all do. And sometimes those get pressed because of the vicissitudes of life. That's what happens. And can our relationships withstand those button presses? Can our relationships thrive despite the fact that we're annoyed, to use your word, that we're um, upset, that we are offended, that we are upset uh, about things that people have done to us, things that people are doing to themselves? Um that's what that chapter is about. It's really an interpersonal extension of how we treat ourselves. You know, our relationships with others are so critical to our mental health. Robert Waldinger, who's in my department here in Boston, has done some incredible work finding that the number one predictor of people's well-being at, at, age, at age 80 is the quality of their relationships at age 50 and 60. And I promise you, those relationships are not with perfect people because perfect people don't exist. And uh, if you want to really have long-term connected relationships with people, it's going to be with people who are imperfect. So accepting those vicissitudes of relationships, those idiosyncrasies, tolerating them with love, with patience is all part about, you know, I think that's what anxiety teaches us. Can we thrive despite feeling terrible? Can we maintain relationships despite the fact that they are imperfect again not with a psychopath or with a sociopath like if someone's out to get you and they're dangerous get away from them okay we're not talking about that we're talking about people who are annoying or obnoxious or who do stupid things frankly can we maintain our connection with them and i hope the answer is yes with, with exactly that point i totally agree okay we need to be understanding and as you say also life is messy love is messy Everything is messy and nothing makes sense because the wife said that life is messy. Yeah, yeah, life is is a great it's a great line. It's so great it's, best line in the book from her. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe should, that should be the title. Life is messy yeah, and how to thrive with it. <laughs> um, but you know, I I had a, a friend once upon a time, and anything anything you would say as a friend, and a friendship relationship should be, you know, also. Um, based on trust, on the we can do, we can enjoy each other attitude and that whatever you say to me is from a good place because we are friends. Um, and she would constantly filter everything I'd say through 
her mind said she's not enough. So whatever I would say, it would be interpreted as a, not criticism, but like she'd feel belittled or she'd feel, um, oh, it reminded her of how her mother would treat her. Or yeah. she, she heard that uh, about a bad friend sometime in the past. Yeah. She and brought that 90% into the moment, not the 10% that was in front of her. Thank you. You know, how do I deal with this? How do I, it's saying, okay, I need to be understanding. I do my arms. I run around the block to just get my adrenaline. And change into acetylcholine, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> that's not a friendship. You do know what I mean, David. I'm I do like, know what you mean. On, let's you be know on what the you level mean. here. Yeah, the first thing to do is accept that people are going to annoy you, and at the time that they're annoying you, it's probably not the time to deal with it. If you fight against anxiety, the moment it strikes, you lose. If you fight against somebody, the moment they annoy you you lose. That's not the time to deal with it. I can't think then. You're just running or fighting. <laughs> exactly. And you're, you're in fight or flight mode. You're not going to be an effective person to deal with the situation because you're annoyed. You got to let the emotions settle first and then have a conversation with the person in a vulnerable way. And the vulnerability is not you shouldn't do this. That's not vulnerable. That's they're vulnerable. You're wrong. I'm right. That's pretentious, frankly. The, the 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 language to use is something on the lines of hey when you did that it really hurt my feelings and this is why and be honest with yourself are you judging them because they're annoying or are you thinking that like when they don't return your i'm making this up when they don't return your call that you feel rejected as a friend or when they're not able to respond to you you feel that they're not able to understand you it makes you feel less close and alone more alone from them that's the vulnerability and that's where the magic happens in in relationships and if we can frame our needs as our needs as opposed to your needs you need to change something's wrong with you that judgment is rarely effective to get people to change or to even contemplate change usually it gets their defenses up and we're off i mean like relationships off, more distance, more disconnection. But if we can say, hey, I really kind of needed you the other day and I felt that that didn't go well, that conversation. Now, then that maximizes the chances of them being responsive. They still might not be responsive, which hurts and it's sad, but then at least you know where you stand. Then you did your part. You didn't react in the moment and you put your best foot forward by being vulnerable. And if they choose not to be there for you, well, you can still have somewhat of a relationship with them, but it's not going to be what you expect. And it's upsetting, but at least you know where you stand. Yeah, yeah. And putting exactly what you say into the context of um, interdependence, and you talk about interdependence, yeah. codependency, and also um, independence or our age of being an individual and kind of like really insisting on our individuality and being, you know, um, tailor-made and wanting others to be tailor-made for us is an interesting one because I'm thinking you're absolutely right. And um, just now on Netflix, there is Living One to 100, a fantastic documentary on the book, The Blue mm -hmm. Zones by Butner. I, yeah, I mean, if you haven't watched it, watch it. It's great. And there, the sense of community, and as you said earlier on, um, is really important for a long life, a happy life. It's kind of like, yeah, you know, you're kind of conjovial, you're together, you're with your family, accepting the messiness of 
life, of relationships, um, people being idiots over and over again. Yes. And, and you know, and I just wonder, you know, I'm just thinking, David, okay, so being with these people that currently, you know, constantly annoying somebody, and I am really idiots, but this is still making me healthier and living longer. <laughs> You know what I mean? Ironically, so, isn't I, it? Yeah, it is really ironic. Again, idiosyncrasy of life. But but I wonder that it's kind of like you have to accept things as they are. On the other hand, maybe through your own behavior, your own, you know, managing your own emotion, anxiety, and also the response to whatever is happening there, you still feel that in that community, you're getting you're getting as much as you're giving or you're getting enough out of it or more than just being, you know, retreating into the woods and not speaking to anybody else apart from you know the dear wildlife or something yeah you know i think one of the things that we get the most out of relationships is resilience to be able to withstand more vicissitudes of life there's a fortitude there's an emotional fortitude that's required and a maturity frankly that's required to have close relationships in the long term because no one's perfect and if you have a relationship that means there are at least two imperfect people yes. who are going to be involved yes both yeah. of them have to tolerate everybody has to tolerate each other Jesus. and um i think that in of itself is uh is a real gift and also a lesson and an art that we have to learn how to practice again before we move on to you know the the end of our conversation which is really the the hands-on tools you bring where this becomes not only a book to read and in information but a um let's say a panacea of okay I need to deal with my anxiety until David is available for me tomorrow morning at 9 a.m because now it's 2 p.m at night so you said the pinnacle of love is that the partners need each other all right and as we were saying earlier on, I mean, I grew up with the mindset that zeitgeist, you don't need anybody, okay? You need to be strong, resilient, go your way, and you don't need anybody. Wrong. You know, I, I don't I, think I, that's a recipe. I think it's a recipe for disaster. It's a disaster today, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Now, on the other hand, within love relationships, to own up and say, hey, I need you. Hmm. Uh, especially also for men hey I need you to each other it is maybe not compatible com that we need to be compatible but also compensating and not meaning mean doesn't really mean that okay here are my faults my lacks and you need to fill it and vice versa but to some extent this kind of needing each other is very unsexy in today's society you know it might be unsexy but behind closed doors, that's what creates intimate connection. I, I can think on one, I can count on one hand the number of people who I can truly count on. The people who I really feel close to. Every single one of them is a shoulder that I would cry on. Somebody who I would open up to if I was in real trouble. I would just say, hey, this is what happened. This is what I'm grappling with. This is what I need from you. And that's why those are close relationships. It's because I can be myself and they can be my, themselves too with me in each of those cases. I'm very blessed to have, you know, several people who I Wonderful. feel I can really go to. But that only happens when we're comfortable being able to say, you know, it might not be sexy on a Hollywood screen, but, you know, after the bright lights shut down, that's what really matters. That's the connection that people are really seeking to get at love. 
that occurs in those private moments of, are you really there for me? That's what I think anyway. No, no, it's very, very deep. And as you were saying, that is really the gateway to intimacy. And I think you mentioned somewhere in the book as well, maybe we don't always get what we want in a relationship, but we certainly get what we need. And with this kind of approach to it, you go like, you may look at your partner in a different different way as well. Yeah, our partners are, if we're blessed to have them, are often the one of the best resources in anxiety. And the more anxious we feel, ironically, if we turn to our partners and if we can turn to our partners and learn how to turn to them in a vulnerable healthy way it can enhance emotional connection intimacy even physical connection can be greatly enhanced when people drop their guard as opposed to pretending that they're not struggling um i actually think in some ways it's a very sexy thing um but again it's it's really behind closed doors that these kinds of things happen yeah and i think what's so wonderful when you say it's an extremely sexy sexy thing to put that in your personal journey from not personal, opening yeah. up at the beginning of your relationship to coming to exactly that line is an amazing growth thanks i hope so i hope my wife would agree um i do think we're a lot more emotionally connect connected than we were when we were, got married at a very young age young and dumb and sort of you know assuming that you have to be you know uh, everything all the time and perfect. And that's just not realistic. So um, I'd like to think that both of us can open up to each other about um, our struggles. And in some ways, that's what defines all good connections. Oh, no, absolutely. And helping good connections is that thriving with anxiety. Now, to to come to a close to this fantastic conversation, David, how would you, what what, what would you say are the three main, I mean, there are nine tools you mentioned there. It's, it's a real system you can grapple, you know, get hold of the consciousness sure. that you're anxious and how to do about it. But if you had to condense it and, and leave us with whatever it is, these are the three main tools that you can use all the time you know, even if it happens that you're feeling feeling anxious three, four times in a matter of 20 minutes, do this and then you'll take it from there. What would you say? Okay, great. So first of all, uh, if people want a condensed version of five tools, um, you can get one on my website, uh, dhrossmarin.com. There is a, a downloadable guide and uh, 16 pages, which is a great summary and you can take a look. But aside from that, I'll give you um, you want three? The number one tool and the most important is when you feel anxious, and I mean when, because you will feel anxious sometimes, this is going to happen, don't fight it. Let it ride. Understand that this is a normal process. Your body is not malfunctioning. Nothing is wrong with you. Don't judge yourself. Allow yourself to experience the anxiety and simply let it occur without fighting it without trying to shorten its lifespan, just let it happen. That's number one. When we do, be kind to yourself because that is not the, the afternoon. If you get anxious in the morning, that afternoon, don't take on a new project, okay? Don't, don't start, you know, uh, don't start tackling a massive thing on your to-do list. Be a little kinder to yourself, understand, that anxiety is normal. It's not a, It's not a, an, un, an unhealthy process. However, it does mean that you have to be more compassionate to yourself. And third, if you have somebody in your life that you can open up to and say, hey, I'm having an anxious day. This morning, I had a panic attack. This morning, I was at the doctor and I freaked out. This morning, I had a 
verbal and oral presentation in my class and I'm still jazzed up from it. You know, hang out with them, talk to them about what's going on, be real with them, be vulnerable, say what you need. Even if it's a hug, it's a cup of coffee, it's just to see their face, you know, nothing wrong with needing love and use the anxiety in those latter ways to enhance our connection with ourselves, to enhance our connection with others, as opposed to something that we run away from and something that we dread, um, which only makes anxiety worse. And if we take that approach, we will we will ultimately be able to thrive with anxiety as opposed to um, trying futilely to run away from it. Love it. Absolutely love it. So, um, yeah, you basically, you, you, you accept that you have it. You say, it's okay. You don't beat yourself up, but you soothe yourself and then you're open about it. And if you have somebody around there, share it, be vulnerable. And you may be surprised. People will say, I felt the same. You know, <laughs> you gotta, like, right? Hey, I had a bad day the other day too. It happens all the time. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we should talk about when do we have a good day that's scary it never happens yeah. oh my god i really really enjoyed our conversation david h rosemarine dr david h rosemarine um your website you mentioned it is dhrosemarine.com um yeah. you have that center for anxiety you have two centers or three centers is it there are actually seven offices there's seven offices wow <laughs> Anxiety epidemic. I think seven really offices will be soon yours. I'm quite sure. <laughs> oh, um, unbelievable! Thank you so so much for your time writing this book. Um, everybody that has followed our conversation, have a look out. Um, David already has the advantage of having the hard copy there in the background. You can see. Yeah, it. I came the other day. Yay! Look at Thank it. Oh, yeah, it makes Great you so so. Oh. Uh, amazing 17th of october it's going to hit then be it amazon or you know the traditional bookshops they're still around believe it or not you can buy it um physically great stuff thank you so so much and um yeah can't wait for your second book <laughs> thank you that's very kind of you and thank you my dear community here on the pulse if you liked our conversation please give us a um, thumbs up and also um, you would do them a great favor if you subscribe, because the more subscribers, the bigger the the guests, the bigger the guests, the more subscribers. That is how it goes. And I hope to see you soon again here on The Pulse. Stay well and stay curious. Bye. Together, go out there. Together, we begin to share. I'm Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium, and host of the Angel Talk podcast. This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. Listen to all my shows at Mind Body Spirit FM or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you have an online course or an event or a book you'd like to promote? We've got the right audience for you. Our listeners love content like the show you just heard. You can reach our engaged audiences by advertising right here on mindbodyspirit.fm, the podcast network, in shows about wellness, self-care, spirituality, angels, and more. Contact info at mindbodyspirit.fm.